I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with N.L. Holmes, the author of seven novels. They're, they're historical fiction, which is really cool. She has the Lord Hani Mysteries set in ancient Egypt and the Empire at Twilight series based upon events and persons from the ancient Hittite Empire. We talk about two of her books, The Lightning Horse and Bird in a Snare, as well as her work as an archaeologist, which is what really makes it cool because she's lived this life delving into ancient history. We also talk about how she writes and creates characters. So lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. N.L. Holmes is a prolific novelist embarking on another significant career phase. Prior to taking up the power of writing and using this pen name, she was an accomplished archaeologist and teacher for 25 years. Early in her career, she served as a nun for two decades. In between, she was an artist and antiques dealer. Yes, she has lived an interesting life, and the sum of her experiences informs and inspires her writings today. Holmes, who earned her doctorate in classical and Near Eastern archaeology studies from Bryn Mawr College, despite an offered to attend Princeton, has excavated in Greece and Israel, and taught ancient history and humanities at Stockton University in New Jersey and University of South Florida for many years. She also did archaeological artwork for excavations from Lebanon. With seven published novels, Holmes is the creator of the Lord Hani Mysteries. The inspiration for her Bronze Age novels came with an assignment she gave to her students one day. Here are the only documents we have telling us about royal divorce in Ugarit in the 13th century. How much can we say about what happened? She notes, it quickly became apparent that almost anything we might come up with was as much fiction as historiography. She also penned the Empire at Twilight series, historical fiction set in the 13th century BC during the Hittite Empire. Born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, she attended the University of Texas in the honors program, but dropped out midway to enter into the an antiques business. Two years later, she entered the Discalced Carmelite Convent in Texas. She left the convent 20 years later and returned to school to get her BA in classical and Near Eastern archaeology. Holmes resides with her husband, three cats, and a dog. They split their time between Tampa, Florida, and northern France, where she gardens, weaves, and plays the violin. They have an adult son. NL, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hello, and thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, and I really enjoy the books. I've, I've read Bird in a Snare and The Lightning Horse. We're going to get a little bit into them in just a little bit, but... Uh, Let's start with a couple items from your bio. Like you had three to five careers almost, right? <laughs> oh, there are a few more in there too. <laughs> I was an interior decorator for a while and an administrative assistant for an educational uh, foundation. Very cool. The, uh, so you, and, and just from what I read, so you've added those to that. You, you were a nun, an antiques dealer, an archaeologist, a professor, and now a writer. How'd you go about making these changes and what prompted these changes? You know, it's curious. They they all seem to me to be the same thing, but different media, if you can put it that way. I think the idea of curiosity and imagination, um, a, a willingness to set aside external things to concentrate on something 
interior, uh, like characterization for an audience. I have not found it jarring to make, make these changes, actually. And, and they sort of feed on each other as well. So my latest incarnation as a novelist um, draws heavily on emotional experiences from all of these other past situations. It's very cool. It's, and what's really awesome is we're not talking about changes that took place like, you know, you went to work for a couple of weeks, a couple of months. I mean, we're talking years um, and in uh, each of these. So it's, you know, for the listeners, it's not like uh, somebody said, ah, I'm done with this. I'm moving on to something else in a, in a quick amount of time. So very cool. And I could see where um, the being part of the convent and then working, you know, with archaeology, how that kind of lends itself to it. If, um, towards uh, church history and such, I would think that would come. Right, yes. Come and as I've said to other people, the experience of living in a very cloistered convent was almost like a trip into the past. It's a sort of medieval society. You know, you're dressed in all these clothes and yet you can still play softball. You have, when someone says, go wash the floors, you don't grab a mop. You get down on your knees with a, a, a cloth. And so, you know, it convinced me, if I needed convincing, that people in the past were not so benighted as we might think they were. Very interesting. I, I can imagine that has a major um, impact on, on your writings and how you approach it. Very cool. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I want to make sure I ask you, where where'd your interest in archaeology come from? Is there an era and people that fascinate you more than any other? Well, I, I go through um, phases of being more fascinated by one era than the other. Uh, I started off in, in Greco-Roman, so mostly Greek, and then in graduate school I moved into the Near East. And they had a very good program, so I got rather wide-ranging background in that. But I think what originally interested me in archaeology, which happened very early in my life, I was probably couldn't even write the word archaeology at that time, was these old sword and sandal epics like Land of the Pharaohs and you know, the Egyptian and things like that. I got very into them, and partly because of the customs and the costumes and the splendor of it all, and with time got more into the nitty-gritty. That's awesome. The, uh, the, and it, you know, it's, uh, you know, to, to be able to, to not only do the research, but then actually participate in digs um, is something that I think is, is fascinating, too, because you hear a lot of people may be in the, in the, the teaching of the classes and the studying and the developing articles and such. And uh, then to actually participate um, is, is, is so awesome. So you, you've participated in archeological digs. What, what's that like? I mean, and did you ever find something that really made you go, oh, cool, this is cool, this is exciting? Well, it's, it's a lot of fun being on a dig. It's, it's a much more informal life than what you would live in you know, academia, the conventional academia. Uh, you're all very close with some people who are world experts in some something, and you as a graduate student or a young archaeologist are, you know, part of the gang. It's, it's very egalitarian. Uh, and plus the idea of, of coming into real contact with the people of the past through their, their objects, their artifacts. I think the most exciting thing we ever found was a large vase that had been broken into about 250 pieces. And after putting it together, you could see that there were handprints all over it. And, you know, 
each handprint is unique in the history of the universe, as far as we know. So there was only one person ever who could have made those prints. And it was, it was a very moving thing, as if somebody was sort of reaching up out of the darkness of the past and saying, remember me. That's cool. That, I, that, I would be really lost in that world because that's something that to think that someone, you know, not only made it, used it, produced it, whatever, but then to see the handprint. <laughs> it was wow. something else, I'll tell you. I can imagine. They are so cool. They, could you talk, uh, you know, so you write historical fiction. Uh, could you talk about the role historical fiction plays in helping us gain, you know, an appreciation of history and a greater perspective of today? Well, I'm, you know, I have to go slowly because you're a history teacher. <laughs> I think too often kids or grownups too are introduced to history as something very dry and impersonal. Uh, it's dates and battles and, you know, great forces at work. But fiction can go into the personal aspect of it, which is really and truly there, uh, even though, you know, character X may not have been the way this author portrays him. He did have emotions. He did make his, his uh, world-changing choices out of a certain repertory of reactions that we all share. So I, I think that a well-written historical fiction book can really not only interest students more, but can can tell you more about the real texture of life in the past. And in fact, in, in one of my classes, which is about women in the ancient world, I assigned the students to read historical fiction and then critique it. So they, they could compare it to what they knew to be factual, but I think they got a lot out of it actually. Oh, that'd be exciting to be able to do that because that's uh, to be able to critique what you, what you just read and to see whether the, see whether you agree, whether the author has uh, done their homework or not, or they just made up their own world that kind of sort of has the past in it. <laughs> exactly. Which, uh, um, which is cool. And by the way, yes, you know, one of the things y you never forget uh, is when, you know, it's just, it's like the disease of the history class is that the, the student's going to walk in and say, do we have to know this for the test? Do we have to take yeah, notes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what's most important in here, the dates or the, it's like, oh, come on, there's more exciting stuff here. <laughs> yeah, true. And once they, once they catch on that it's about people, it's more like reading People magazine or something. They're, you know, they're interested in their lives and, and things of that sort. So if there were some way to inject even more fiction into historiography, I think that might have some merit. I think you're right. The, uh, you know, cause it is, it is something that I, I, yeah, I think in the long, in the long run, it's kind of like uh, when a kid, <clears throat> although kids today are a little more knowing, <laughs> but you know, there's always the thought that when you see uh, old TV or old movies that uh, was the world black and white then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and going further back, thinking that, you know, these people interacting with each other, it's not just words in a book. They're actually, somebody wrote them down, but people actually lived them somehow. So, uh, so they're interacting with each other, which is cool. Um, you, you know, what would you say that there, I, I mean, would you say that there are challenges and rewards, you know, of bringing ancient history authentically to life today? Absolutely. And the challenges, I guess, are evident. I'm thinking now specifically of the period of Akhenaten when the Lord Honey Mysteries take place. He, he is very little known, and the events after his death are almost totally obscure. We don't know 
his relationship with his successors? Did they co-rule with him or come after his death? It's because, of course, his, his uh, more distant successors completely obliterated him from the historical record. So all we know pretty much is with the little pieces that archaeology can patch together for us. So, you know, you have to make a lot of choices. Very few things, even facts, are, well, that's in quotes, uh, events, are accepted by every expert. So you have to choose, do I go with this theory? Do I go with that theory? And having been in, as a history professional, I, I can see that I, as a novelist, make different choices. Uh, it's not just necessarily the most probable or the most supported by evidence. But um, I guess the most colorful would be one way of doing it. However, I would never uh, contradict anything that's commonly accepted as fact. The, the pluses, well, if you're like me and love to research a subject that I adore, you know, that's the reward. I, I get to zero in on particular facets of culture. Even though I have a kind of basic professional knowledge, uh, if something comes up in the book, they're traveling by boat, I have to think, find out somehow how long it takes to sail from here to there. Um, so I've, I've been authentic wherever I could be, but even then there are many areas that just have to be filled in. Oh, that's understandable. But I, just a side note, I mean, like, you know, right away in the lightning horse, um, you know, you, you get, you get sucked into the story and there's this, this horse race going on and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and then something happens and, you know, and it's uh, quickly, you know, it's, it's cool because your mind starts flashing back <clears throat> to what you think of those times and you put enough in there that you really get kind of a feel for the, the you know, some of what you think is the the background might look like and such. And, uh, and I just think it's, it's cool to be able to, you know, if you, you put enough of the history in there so that, uh, cause obviously, you know, nobody's recording those conversations. No, exactly. <laughs> you know, I might say this, I actually learned to drive horses for that novel just Ooh. so I'd have more authentic knowledge base and could picture it more clearly and talk with a little more authority. That's cool because that that explains that explains a lot because it's very real feeling with the uh, the excitement and the the way the horses are pulling and and something that happens in this story I'm trying not to say <laughs> to go, right, go right. into that no but, spoilers please <laughs> but uh, um, cool stuff I like I like the fact that you learned how to um, use horses for the, so you can get that that's neat um, you know, let's talk about a couple of your about a couple of these series. So let's let's start with the Lightning Horse and Bird in a Snare. The Lightning Horse is a drama with political intrigue and the first book in an Empire at Twilight series. That series is based on the world of the Hittites and Bird in a Snare is a murder mystery set in ancient Egypt. Could you share a little bit about each of these stories? Well, uh, the Lightning Horse is part of a series that's much more loosely related, so they're pretty much independent books. Each one of them and can be read in any order. The Lightning Horse actually takes place 23 years before most of the subsequent um, books. And it deals with the childhood of characters that turn up later. Uh, in fact, that's kind of what I've tried to do with that series, is take a peripheral character, some walk-on walk part, and, and then spin their story in another book. Uh, so they cover, essentially, the last three generations of rulers of the Hittite Empire, which... Um, Fizzled, was actually overthrown uh, in about 1180. 
And the Egyptian uh, series is, there's a single protagonist throughout, so they're much more conventionally serial. Uh, however, there are some long arcs that um, see the development of characters, in particular, Hani's children grow up and take, start taking more part in the action. Uh, I knew more about Egypt to start with than I did about the Hittites, and I, I guess more is known about the Egyptians. So I had to, to, to begin with a more basic level of research, and it's, I love that sort of thing. It's just fascinating. Now I'm deeply into them. That's very cool, because I can imagine the, the less you knew, the more exciting it would be to start discovering aspects of their civilization, their culture that uh, you probably are like, oh, okay, this, this works. <laughs> so very and meeting cool. characters too, uh, historical characters. That one, that series has kings in it. And we know only a few of the things that they did, you know, very little of what they even said, and even less about them as persons. So that was, that was fun to imagine what the person who did this thing must have been like. And, you know, what could explain his actions here. It was, um, it was a lot of fun. I can imagine. So can you remind the listeners where the Hittite empire was, what part of the, where we're talking about? It's uh, centered in modern Turkey up towards the north, but the empire actually ruled all the way down into Syria. Uh, their vassal states went as far east as Assyria and as far south as, um, well, uh, they, they owned Ugarit in most of this period. So that was, um, that's northern Syria right now. So it was, they came into contact with the Mycenaean Greeks and, you know, other cultures that we maybe know more about. And they probably were the, the Trojans, I should say, were probably vassals of the Hittites. And, and so the, uh, the Trojan War would have come out of this period. Gotcha. Very cool. The, uh, uh, you know, so when you researched or prepared to write, what'd you do to try to make the story seem really based on these eras? I mean, what, because it's, I got to tell you, it feels good when you're, when you're reading your stories, it, uh, there's, it's not like, uh, yeah, you know, I've read some books where you start going, I'm not so sure this person knows much about what the era they're talking about. So I'm afraid I have to. <laughs> well, I, I, as I say, I, research them extensively and um, not only about events and things, and all the books have a, a certain basis in real events, but try to get more of the texture of everyday life and a lot of the details. And I think having been an artist uh, makes me more aware of the visuals and uh, other sensual details like that. So that's been an interesting part of it too. That's, that's cool. Cause I can see how that would play out. Um, cause you do pay, you know, you pay attention to that type of thing. I, I, for lack of a better term, the idea that the way people would see your story through their eyes, right, like with right. art. So very cool. Uh, it, what would you say is the most, uh, what's most difficult about writing conversations between historical figures? Well, first of all, you have to settle on their character and, and then make the conversation true to their, their personality. But I guess the biggest thing for historical fiction generally is how archaic do you want it to sound? Uh, you have to avoid open anachronisms. And, and boy, did I ever find out how many modern phrases we use that are based in the, you know, the computer age or the industrial revolution that had to go. Uh, 
I've been told that readers start getting uncomfortable if you use anything later than the early 19th century for, for you know, idiosyncratic expressions. So I've tried to observe that. But then I also want them to sound like human beings who are talking among their own family or, you know, so it's, I've, I've made it perhaps more colloquial than some authors have chosen to do it. But there's a, there's a balance there and it's not all that easy to hit. I, I don't think there's any one point on the spectrum that will please everybody actually. I think that's, that's an interesting point right there because you, you have to be careful not to make it uh, too, you know, I've, I've not really read lots of um, works from those eras, <laughs> um, but all you got to do is read some works from the early 1800s, 1700s to know that, you know, some of the, the verbiage and such that's used in those days, you could lose people in a heartbeat. <laughs> I mean, well, especially in the Pat D. when we mostly have uh, official inscriptions and things, and it's all very grandiose, and you know people didn't actually speak on that. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Oh, come on. They didn't need, you know, uh, <laughs> I certainly don't. <laughs> right, right. Just, that's not the way it works. Um, I, I like that. So that's, that's, that's interesting because that, that I could, you think about how much is, I, I can, you've run into it. I mean, I, I'm just thinking right now about how much is influenced by our technology age that we're in. I, I can imagine it's very difficult to, oh, there's another one. <laughs> Get that out of here. You really have to keep your eyes open. That's wild. The, uh, so let's talk about characterization. How do you how do you build your characters? How do you how do you create and develop them? I mean, what where did you start? Do you like put a couple on the wall and say, okay, here's? Well, this is a very mysterious process, and I'm afraid I can't answer it to anyone's satisfaction. Uh oh. I'm fortunate enough to be basing it on characters that are historical, or at least their names. We know very little about Hani. Just, he was a diplomat that carried out such and such an assignment. And uh, we find this out from the Amarna letters, which is a diplomatic correspondence from the reign of Akhenaten that's been recovered. But beyond that, we know nothing. I mean, his personality, nothing. So I've just had to kind of start imagining the person who would do these things and what kind of person he would be. Uh, what are his character traits? And thinking in general terms about Egyptian society. They were, they loved their families. They were very much into the family. So I gave him a personality that's, you know, very protective and very affectionate. So it's, um, you just kind of patched them together. And, and the lightning horse, the most historical character was the king, Hattusili. We have a little bit more about him in that he wrote a sort of apology or excuses for uh, usurping the throne from his nephew. And so he mentions some factoids from his own life there. It's partly autobiographical. Then you get start getting a feel for the kind of person who would say these things or someone who would act like that. Um, and, you know, you start building from there. And once I get a mental picture of them, then they're real <laughs> for me. And it's hard to imagine that historical character otherwise, even when I read them in history. That's awesome. I, and I think that's, that's, I got to come back to this. So, so he wrote an apology for taking over <laughs> from his nephew. Is it? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> nice. Bob's made him do it. <laughs> nice, nice, exactly. <laughs> um, 
Very nice. <laughs> I like that. That's you're, yeah. I, I really didn't do this. I just wanted to make sure that everyone understood that. So <laughs> I really like my nephew. <laughs> nice. That that in itself would be quite fascinating to see what he would put it the in that list. That I, I could imagine you could develop um, some traits out of there. <laughs> and his wife, Queen Puduhepa, lived for ninety years. She she was in office even in the time of her grandson and left an enormous amount of correspondence with other kings and queens, for example, in Egypt. So we get a pretty good flavor of her personality as well. And so that, that couple, whom I kind of gave a Nick and Nora relationship, were, you know, a, a real power couple and interesting people, I'm sure. Very cool. So uh, in their era, is, is the transition in that world uh, pretty much by warfare or by who has the the bigger toys and the more power, or is it a family line? Well, they, they tend to be uh, dynasties that are based on blood. In fact, for the Hittites, almost the entire government was populated by sons of the kings, and uh, the daughters were married out to cement uh, foreign relations, so everybody was in on it. But um, in Egypt, too, you get dynasties that not one, they succeeded each other ever so often. For example, uh, with Tutankhaten, he was the last of, of his blood dynasty. And so then a relative by marriage, um, his grandfather, seems to have taken over then. And then it passes you know, into a completely new group of people. So it's, uh, it's a mixture of all of those things. And, and warfare, for sure, they tended not to want to go to war together, the great empires. The stakes were too high. It's sort of a cold war. So they would, uh, they had all of these little vassal states who served as a buffer to their uh, homeland. And they would stir up the little vassals against one another. And they would sort of keep the warfare local that way. Fascinating. That's, that's wild. Very cool. The, uh, it, all right. So I got to ask this question. I, and I saved it for a little deeper into the interview. But do you outline or just start and see where you go. Oh, I'm such a pantser. That's, that is, I write by the seat of my pants. I started the first one uh, trying to do it with an outline, and I thought I would die. <laughs> I, I, just, I would look at a piece of white paper and think of nothing. I thought, this is the end of my career. <laughs> but then I realized that you know, it's okay just to sort of launch yourself in. In fact, sometimes I, I mean, I always make a few notes and kind of what I want generally to happen. But sometimes I just write scenes as they come to me. Uh, emotionally intense scenes usually, confrontations or whatever. And then string them together, and uh, which kind of gives me an outline. This happens first, and then this happens. And then I have to weave them together with uh, motivations and you know, the tissue that interconnects. Very cool. And I, I love the fact that uh, you use the term pantser. That's, that's, uh, that's become quite a term of writers. Yes, yes it has. And I love that. So and, uh, that's cool. The, uh, um, so, you know, would you care to talk about any of your upcoming series or where you are? Because you, you've got seven books? Seven out right now. I have another one ready for the uh, uh, Empire at Twilight series which I just need to kind of brush up a little, and I'll get that probably out in the spring. That is uh, The Sun at Twilight, which is about an emperor of uh, the Hittite Empire. 
And uh, and then in the Lord Hani series, I, I just uh, set off to the editor, a fifth volume, uh, which is the Lake of Flowers. So that that sort of covers the period right after Akhenaten's death, and um, and then there will be at least one more of that series. But then I wanted to go back and do prequels to that because Hani's getting a little long in the tooth. He he won't be doing much fighting in the future. So I'd like to go back to his younger years and kind of see how uh, relationships developed before that and, and get a more of a, a background for the later books. Very cool. Very cool. And, you know, we're getting close to finishing up, but before we do that, I want to read, uh, you know, on uh, um, an Amazon reader's comments um, about the lightning horse. If you love ancient history brought to life, this book is for you. The novel seamlessly interweaves complex psychological dynamics with affairs of state offering memorable characters. And uh, someone else said a must read, whether you are a fan of historical fiction or long for a good story set in an exotic landscape, this book, this book brings to life the ancient Hittite empire, present day Turkey with vivid details and dynamic characters replete with murder, intrigue, and eventual redemption. You know, I, I love this. And, uh, and I had the same experience when I'm reading your books and uh, I think it's so cool. So it's keep up that great work there in these continuation of stories. Um, you know, so in El, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? Well, I guess my website would be the first place. It's uh, www.nlholmes.com. Uh, I do have a Facebook account and Twitter and uh, so NL Holmes books is my handle. So I'd be happy to hear from anyone, take any questions, or share my favorite reading list or something. Excellent, excellent. So I'll make sure those are in my show notes uh, when it's shared out. And uh, um, as well as when uh, we uh, post everything, I'll make sure that it's uh, um, linked on, on those uh, social media platforms. So last two questions I've got for you, Nell, and, and these are just things I like to ask my guests. Uh, the first one goes like this. When things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once and you want to quit, how do you overcome those feelings and keep going? Well, for me at least, the difficulty and the unpleasantness has been in the business of writing. Uh, the fact that as an independent uh, author, I have to do my own publicity. You know, it's, it's a lot of work, a lot of work. And I sometimes feel like it's cutting in half the time I can actually spend writing. But it doesn't matter how good your books are if no one's ever heard of them. You know, you're not going to sell any. So <laughs> it is necessary. Uh, my father was in the publicity business and I understand this. But the part that I like is the writing. That's uh, much less effortful uh, for me than the other side of it. Uh, sometimes you do hit a dry spot. And I, I think I almost gave up when I discovered that I was a pantser and not a plotter. I mean, that was the most deadening sense of impasse ever. Um, but it can happen. I mean, you, for whatever reason, you feel like you've gone dry. You know, you just have to keep at it. That's all. As long as you're writing, you're a writer. It's not like you have to be successful at, it at any given moment. That's excellent. I, I appreciate you sharing that, especially because it, you've shared some of those things that impact you directly that I, you could just imagine with the, as a, as a writer. So thank you. Uh, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say, thank you? There have been so many wonderful teachers who have made a difference in my life. I hardly know where to, to start. 
I'm, I'm still in communication with my uh, third, fourth, and fifth grade teachers, if you can imagine. Nice. They were so supportive and encouraging. And, you know, I, I grew up thinking the sky was the limit. There wasn't anything I couldn't do. Uh, in college, as an undergraduate, I had some great professors. Um, Vincent Bruno, Charlie Chasen, Don Kyle, Carl Petruzzo, and others. But they were... Um, they made me enthusiastic about the fields I had chosen. And then in graduate school, it was just a terrific faculty. Uh, it was so knowledgeable and so willing to help. It was a great esprit de corps at Brunoir. The, the grad students and the, the professors were just, um, we socialized together and you know we were always learning from them, even outside the classroom. So I have to say, teachers have made a huge impact on my life. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. That's, that, that's so cool. And it, it's, and that you've come in, in um, different stages, different ways and such. I, I think that's neat. So thank you for sharing. Uh, NL, thank you so much for talking with me today. I, I've read Bird in a Snare and The Lightning of Horse, and they make the reader travel back in time and just want to know more. And uh, really, uh, your characters have really come to life, which is really, really cool because of the, you know, the ancient times. And that's, that's so neat with you know, your background in archaeology, and you can see it paying off. I mean, they're exciting and bring history. You know, just, just, just make it, you, you feel like you're living it. Um, keep them coming. Wish you the best in all you do. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.